Hello and welcome to Navara Live. I'm Moya Lathan McLean and tonight I'm joined by Helena, aka No Justice MTG on YouTube and Twitch. Helena, hello. Good to see you. Always a pleasure to co-host with you today, Moya, and looking forward to the show today. Well, coming up later tonight, Britain is officially in a recession. We'll be speaking to an economist to find out how bad it really is. British Gas have recorded a tenfold increase in their profits amid the cost of living crisis. And we talked to campaigners on how the Met Police plan to surveil young black and brown people after dropping their controversial gangs matrix. First story. The Nasser Hospital in Khan Yunus is the biggest hospital in southern Gaza, and it was also one of the last functioning hospitals in the territory. That's no more after Israeli forces stormed it this morning. The raid began with airstrikes, followed by gun and tank fire, leading to what Médecins Sans Frontières described as a chaotic situation inside the building. They also say an undetermined number of people have been killed or injured and report that their medical staff have had to flee, leaving their patients behind. However, the IDF tells a different story. This is their spokesperson, Daniel Hagari, describing the operation. The IDF is conducting a precise and limited operation inside Nasser Hospital. This sensitive operation was prepared with precision and is being conducted by IDF special forces who underwent specified training for this mission. A key objective, as defined by our military mission, is to ensure that the NASA hospital continues its important functions of treating Gazan patients. We communicated this in a number of conversations we had with the hospital staff over the last few days. We emphasized that there is no obligation for patients or staff to evacuate the hospital. However, we have been urging other Gazans in Arabic, on the phone and via loudspeakers to move away from the danger that Hamas puts them in. So, to be clear, the IDF has shelled a hospital where it told medics and patients not to leave. Now, it's true that the IDF told the roughly 8,000 displaced Palestinians sheltering in the hospital to evacuate, but this is what happens when they follow that command. I left with my husband. He is blind. I was doing kidney dialysis. They destroyed the wall surrounding us, as well as Dr. Rizit's room. They ordered us to leave and fired at us. They fired bombs and rockets on our heads from the top. They demolished the building. We left from the door and we walked through sewage along with my husband. The Israelis then took my husband and I lost my two bags. I cannot find them. Medics and journalists also appear to have been targeted after leaving the hospital. This was posted to Instagram by Salah Al-Jafari. Oh, <laughs> 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 
The video you saw there showed a woman identified as Dr. Isra Abu Roga injured by shelling as she and others left NASA hospital. She's bundled into a car by her companions who drive her away amid explosions. Israel says its troops have entered the hospital because it has, quote, credible intelligence that the bodies of hostages are being held there. According to medics in the hospital, one patient was killed and six injured in the attack. Dr. James Smith is an emergency medical doctor who recently visited Gaza with medical aid for Palestinians. Here's what he's heard from his contacts on the ground in NASA hospital. What we've heard over the last uh, 24 hours or so is is utterly horrifying. We are hearing stories of uh, drones or the, the quadcopters, as they're called, passing on messages to people seeking shelter in the hospital grounds, telling them that they must, uh, they must flee. We've uh, heard stories of uh, a doctor that was hit by shrapnel while he was in the hospital. We've also heard of a, a tank shell that has been fired into the orthopedic department in the hospital. One patient was killed in their beds. Several other patients were injured. The UN is reporting that there's sewage running freely through the emergency department. Um, and footage that we've seen uh, from Nasser Hospital overnight. In that footage, you can hear the sound of, of heavy gunfire uh, immediately outside uh, the hospital building. As of this morning, the Israeli military uh, have acknowledged, have admitted that they have raided the hospital itself. So they had troops inside uh, the building as of this morning. Hospitals provide essential medical care to, in this case, tens of thousands of people. There are so few hospitals that still have uh, any semblance of a, of, of a functional status that, that NASA Hospital is providing care to a significant proportion of the population of the Gaza Strip. To lay siege to that hospital, uh, to attack that hospital and now to raid the hospital is catastrophic, almost beyond comprehension. Um, my experience working in Al-Aqsa Hospital in, in the middle area really sort of made very clear to me just how uh, fraught the current circumstances are for Palestinian healthcare workers um, working in the Gaza Strip. We obviously know that um, several uh, other hospitals across Gaza have been attacked, raided, damaged, destroyed. Many healthcare workers have been killed, a significant proportion of them while on active duty. Uh, we know that Shifa has been uh, raided, much like Nasser Hospital has been now. The implications of this latest attack are uh, yeah, deeply concerning. I returned from Gaza on the 8th of January. Uh, in the month following, we've had uh, provisional measures imposed by the ICJ, which are intended to protect the Palestinian people. Uh, with each passing day, the situation has only gotten worse, not better. Israel is also reported to be shelling near another hospital in Khan Yunus. The Palestinian Red Crescent Society has said that IDF fire has resulted in material damage to the building of the Al-Amal Hospital. And footage from the PRCS shows the deadly risks that ambulance workers face in Gaza. This ambulance was carrying oxygen tanks from the NASA hospital to the Al-Amal Hospital when it came under fire from IDF soldiers. According to the PRCS, Israel also falsely claimed that it had transported the much-needed medical equipment to the Al-Almal hospital. People leaving Khan Yunis are largely heading further south to Rafa, where 1.5 million displaced Palestinians are currently crammed against the Egyptian border. Israel has said it will expand its ground operation to Rafa, leading many to fear that thousands of Palestinians will be pushed over the border into Egypt, a push that would come with even more unspeakable border violence. 
Speaking at the United Nations, UN humanitarian chief Martin Griffiths gave this warning. The possibility of a military operation in Rafa, with the possibility of the crossing closing down, with the possibility of spillover, a sort of Egyptian nightmare, is one that is right before our eyes. Also at the UN was the head of the International Red Cross, who explained the difficulty in evacuating Palestinians from Rafa to the northern parts of Gaza. If war plans foresee the evacuation of the population, it is critical that they account for the reality of massive numbers of people moving across bomb-damaged roads and areas contaminated by unexploded weapons. Evacuations must ensure that civilians arrive safely and have satisfactory conditions of hygiene, health, safety and nutrition. Questions such as how to safely transport the disabled, the elderly, the sick, and where such a large population can move and reside safely with basic needs met are critical to answer, to be answered in advance. And without these clear answers, without clear plans, without actionable plans, without feasible plans, the suffering, as I said, will be taken to new depths. Meanwhile, members of Netanyahu's cabinet have been making their intentions for Palestinians clear. Commenting on an article about the formation of a Palestinian state, Israel's finance minister, Bezal Smotrich, said this. We will in no way agree to this plan, which actually says the Palestinians deserve a reward for the terrible massacre they did to us, a Palestinian state with Jerusalem as its capital. The message is it pays very well to massacre Israeli citizens. A Palestinian state is an existential threat to the state of Israel, as was proven on October 7th. Kafar Saba will not be Kafar Gaza. While Israel's army conducts operations in Gaza, it's also bombing people in Lebanon. Israeli airstrikes on villages across southern Lebanon have killed 11 civilians, amongst them were six children, with the Lebanese security forces saying none of those civilians killed had any links to Hezbollah. The strikes in retaliation for the loss of an IDF soldier killed by cross-border fire yesterday. A senior Hezbollah official has now said that the organisation is, quote, prepared for the possibility of expanding the war. IDF spokesperson Peter Lerner explained Israel's position to Sky News. What I'm trying to get at is whether what we have seen in the past 24 hours directed towards Hezbollah is retaliation for what has happened uh, to Israel, what they have done to Israel, or whether we are likely to see more of this. We are going to see the tempo of this assault on Hezbollah continuing to escalate. I certainly hope not. We are, as I said, we still maintain a defensive posture, but terrorists are launching attacks against us. You know, We have a soldier that was killed yesterday in a strike con- conducted by Hezbollah. And so we went after the perpetrator of that attack. And that is precisely the very clear message that if you come at us, don't expect to be protected. Um, Our defensive posture and and our presence and our understanding of the reality is one that um, Hezbollah is choosing to escalate the situation. Our goal is to defend the people of Israel, to to defend our communities in the north. As I said, 100,000 people have been evacuated from their homes, displaced in their country because of Hezbollah's aggression against us. That's an unacceptable reality for Israel. We need to make sure that Hezbollah are moved We need to make sure that our border is secure and the people can get back home. The escalation of hostilities continued today with Hezbollah claiming responsibility for a rocket attack on the northern Israeli city of Kirat Shimona. 
Now, Helena, let's go to the domestic situation because we saw David Lammy uh, share a call for Israel to adhere to the ICJ ruling and saying that a military offensive in Rafah is unacceptable. This is a definite shift in Labour's position. If Labour starts to oppose what's going on, does that put real pressure on Rishi Sunak to act? I'm not surprised to see that Labour have shifted their rhetoric and position on this somewhat, given what has been reported about internal Labour Party communications making them aware that the support they have within certain communities who are very sympathetic to the Palestinian cause has massively dropped over the last few months. I'm not surprised to see this kind of change in rhetoric. But the rhetoric is one thing, action is another thing. Okay, you can say it's unacceptable. It probably will put pressure on Rishi Sunak because there is a, a huge majority, a gigantic supermajority of polling in this country for supporting an immediate ceasefire. In fact, the majority of people, a plurality sorry, of people polled in this country believe that there is no justification for Israel continuing their military campaign whatsoever. So the, the the public is clearly on one side of this discussion and our politicians are way on the other side. So Labour pressuring the government on this into where the people's hearts really are is a good strategy politically for them to do. Of course, the pressure is just to change the rhetoric from the government. I mean, at this point, we're really still in this position, as I've said before, where people will say, oh, well, they have to maintain international law. They have to adhere to the ICJ ruling. Okay, is there consequences for when they don't do that? Is there consequences for them breaking international law? Are we still going to sell them weapons? Are we still going to not have an official call for a ceasefire? Are we going to vote for a ceasefire when the SNP table it in the comments? very, very soon. These things which actually have not just symbolic, but also material relationship to what's happening specifically with regards to arms sales. Again, we can have these discussions around arms sales to plenty of other countries too, but Israel is currently the one committing ethnic cleansing in Palestine. So you can say, you can spend all of your, you can go blue in the face saying how unacceptable the incursion to Rafa is. But unless you're calling for there to be a halting of arms sales immediately to Israel, we're still culpable and the words are at least somewhat empty. Totally agree. Let's go on to our next story. For Lent, the UK has decided to give up growth. Yes, that's right. The UK has officially entered a recession. News that will come as no surprise to anyone who's noticed how dead our city centres have become. It's bad news for everyone, but especially for the Tories, because they've made growing the economy a central plank of their pre-election platform. At least that's what they say outwardly. This was Chancellor Jeremy Hunt responding to the news. We always expected growth to be weaker while we prioritise tackling inflation. That means higher interest rates. And that's the right thing to do because you can't have long-term healthy growth with high inflation, but also for families uh, when the when there's a cost of living crisis, when the cost of their weekly shop is going up, their energy bills are much higher, it's the right thing to do. The underlying picture here is an economy that is more resilient than most people predicted. Inflation is coming down, real wages have been going up now for six months. And if we stick to our guns, independent forecasters say that by the early summer we could start to see interest rates falling and that will be a very important relief for families with mortgages. It's a pretty wild take, isn't it? A shrinking economy is a robust economy. Now, a recession is defined as two consecutive, that's back-to-back -back quarters, of economic contraction measured by GDP. 
the third quarter of 2023 saw Britain's economic output shrink by 0.1%. The last quarter of the year saw a 0.3% contraction. Likely factors in the downturn include the cost of living crisis resulting in less spending by consumers as well as low productivity. This week, the number of people not working due to long-term illness hit a record 2.8 million. That's also hardly surprising when there are now 7.6 million people languishing on NHS waiting lists. Yet another Tory failure. And leaks from the Treasury suggest that could get worse. Because Jeremy Hunt, at least until yesterday, was apparently looking to cut public spending in order to fund tax cuts before the next election. (laughs) Really you know, chopping off your nose to spite your face. Chancellors don't normally discuss their budgets before announcing them for fear of startling the markets. Nonetheless, Hunt gave this hint about his direction of travel. I do believe, if you look around the world, that the economies, as we were talking about, like uh, the United States and Canada, uh, which have lighter taxes, particularly lighter taxes on business, tend to grow faster. But I would only cut taxes in a way that was responsible and I certainly wouldn't do anything that fueled inflation just when we're starting to have some success in bringing down inflation. Are you prepared to constrain public spending even further to fund tax cuts? Well, you'll have to wait for the budget, um, for the, the decision that the Prime Minister I uh, eventually make. Um, but what I would say is that I was Health Secretary for nearly six years. I negotiated a lot of extra money for the NHS. I'm a passionate supporter of the NHS and all our public services. But in the long run, the best thing that I can do as Chancellor for the NHS is to make sure that our economy is growing healthily. So what you will see in everything I do in the budget on March the 6th is prioritising economic growth. Well, if you want to prioritise economic growth, why don't you fund industry? Why don't you tax massive corporate profits? Why don't you nationalise the private companies that have taken over our institutions? So that we don't have to have all these little tax cuts to scrape little bits of money here and there. And our public services actually work because we're getting bang for our taxpayer buck. Anyway, when Hunt talks about prioritising economic growth there, he's talking about GDP, which is the total value of goods and services produced in the country. But that's only one measure of how well an economy is doing. And it's pretty arbitrary to focus on it over other measures. Pundits today have been keen to characterise the recession as merely technical because the shrinkage in GDP has been relatively small. But when we look at other economic measures, the picture is, I'm afraid to say, much bleaker. The black bars on this Bloomberg graph show the total GDP, the measure that shows the UK economy has slipped into recession. But the red bars show GDP per person, so many Ps, which gives a good indication of how changes to the economy are felt at the individual level. Hint, bad. And that measure shows that the UK has been in recession since the second quarter of 2022, with shrinkage or no growth over almost the last two years. It also shows that the downturn has been accelerating quarter on quarter since the beginning of 2023. That economic hit at the individual level has been catastrophic. At the end of 2023, real wages, that's wages adjusted for inflation, were at the same level as early 2008. And that means that wages have been stagnant since the 2008 global financial meltdown. An article from the New Statesman's put those figures into context, saying this. 15 years of no real pay growth is something Britain has not experienced in the 250 years since the Industrial Revolution. 
The big picture then is one of a stagnant economy and a serious squeeze on living standards. Many Britons will no doubt be surprised to learn that the recession has only just become official. They've been experiencing one since 2022. There's no denying that the Tories have overseen 14 years of economic failures and today's figures just bring what we've all felt into sharper focus. But what would Labour do about it? Just last week, Keir Starmer ditched Labour's bold flagship economic policy to invest £28 billion a year on green national infrastructure. With that now off the table, what's left of Labour's economic agenda? Shadow Chancellor Rachel Reeves gave a press conference this morning. She was asked what difference there was between Labour and the Tories' economic plans. Unlike this Prime Minister and this Chancellor, Keir Starmer and me have got a real plan, a concrete plan for growth. And don't just take our word for it, take the words of the businesses who have helped us devise these plans, whether it's reform of planning or of pensions, the National Wealth Fund and GB Energy. This is all about getting the growth in our economy that we need. The Conservatives have no plan. We have a serious plan that we've worked on with business. Something tells me that building your economic proposals in the interest of business isn't necessarily going to be in the interest of ordinary people. Well, to take us through all this, I'm joined now by economist Richard Murphy. Richard, first of all, what is the actual answer to a recession? And will the government or Labour be willing to do it? Oh, the answer to a recession is incredibly straightforward. You need more spending. It's simple and it's straightforward. And the only people, the only person agency that is able to deliver extra spending at the moment is the government. And therefore, the government has to spend more. Um, It is simple, it is straightforward, and that has to be the answer. Tax cuts cannot beat a recession. Austerity cannot beat a recession. Cutting investment, which is what Labour is planning, cannot beat a recession. Only more government spending can. And it either spends on investing, which is exactly what Labour said it won't do. So in fact, it needs to spend that 28 billion and quite possibly quite a lot more. And that would be directly the government expending the money into the economy, which of course, if you listen to a Tory, if you listen to the BBC, frankly, you'd think that money is just poured into an empty pit. But it isn't. It becomes people's wages. And then they spend money and they pay tax on that. And then the people who receive the next stage of it pay tax as well. And the money is expanded through a multiplier effect. In fact, very often, if you spend money on investment from the government, you end up with more back in tax than you originally spent. There's a second area where investment is needed, and that is where the government needs to support households to invest. And there's two particular areas where that's important, and they're both to do with the green energy crisis that we face. One is we need more heat pumps because the rate of insulation at the moment is pathetic. Um, secondly, we need more um, insulation, which is related to heat pumps because heat pumps don't work unless you've got an insulated house. And third, we do need to up the rate of conversion of cars to electric cars from existing petrol and diesel cars. So households need to invest more, but frankly, they can't afford to. Therefore, they need to be supported with bigger grants. Um, Guess what Labour did with those? Those grants are going to be disappearing. So that isn't going to be happening. The third area where we need investment is in business. Now, business at the moment has absolutely no reason to invest anymore. It isn't effectively net investing very much at all. And it has no reason to be because the economy is flatlining and therefore it's got no great incentive to spend more money because there's no more money for it to earn. Unless the government spends more, 
unless it supports households to spend more. And of course, if unless the government supports decent pay rises for people as well, because that's another element in that, then business won't have an incentive to invest either. So it is all down to the government changing the rules on spending and actually opening up the taps, putting the money out into the economy, because that is the way to deliver growth. And because you spend you generate other income for other people on which they pay tax, which goes back to the exchequer, and you get a virtuous upcycle, whereas at the present point in time, we're in a downcycle, which is being created precisely because we've had tax cuts which benefit the rich, we've had increases in interest rates which benefit bankers, and we've had austerity which absolutely withdraws money from the economy. And against this background, the Bank of England has been withdrawing up to £100 billion plus a year in the quantitative tightening programme, which has actually made credit harder to obtain. All round, this government has delivered a disaster, and Rachel Reeves is showing no sign of wanting to change any of that. On that point, both Jeremy Hunt and Rachel Rees, when people say, well, what about spending? They say, well, we'd have to borrow to spend, but we can't borrow to spend because borrowing is too expensive because of the interest rates. How do you counter something like that? Well, first of all, the interest rate shouldn't be that high. It's completely absurd that the interest rates went ever, up, ever went up in the first place because inflation goes away when it is of the type that we've just suffered. We had two shock events. One was the reopening from COVID and the other was the onset of war in Ukraine. Both of those created shock and financial speculation and basically both involved companies putting up prices to protect themselves. Once that becomes normalised, those prices flow through the system. 12 months later, they fall out of the inflation index, which is exactly, by the way, what is happening now. It is virtually impossible for inflation not to fall to 2% by May this year, simply because of the way in which the inflation index is constructed. That's going to happen. It's no miracle. It's no surprise. It's nothing else. It simply is price changes working through the system. It's incredibly simple mathematics, in fact. I mean, I've been saying this for ages. They didn't need to put the interest rate up. They don't need to hold out now. They should be cutting interest rates at this moment heavily. Um, Interest rates should by now be falling to 2% or less. The risk is that they're going to massively overshoot by keeping interest rates high. They're going to put us into a deeper recession. Um, And we might even end up with the risk of deflation, which is what is now happening in China. And falling prices, by the way, are not good news because falling prices, that's a real fall, not declining inflation, which means the rate of increase has declined, but actually falling prices, it means that businesses and people put off spending because they think something might be cheaper next year. If you put off spending, of course, you actually create a recession again. So deflation creates a recessionary environment. We're having everything being thrown at us that is going to create a very serious economic situation unless the Bank of England cuts rates and the government starts spending. One of the Bank of England rate setters uh, come out today and said that they you know, she was like, well, we want to see more evidence inflation is fa- like falling before we cut those interest rates. Why are the Bank of England so dogged on this? I mean, we can offer the non-technical stup- uh, answer, which is they're stupid. I mean, I'm not being <laughs> silly. They obviously do not understand economics um, because it is obvious that inflation has got to fall. I've just pointed out it's a mathematical certainty that inflation must fall um, over the next few months unless there is another shocking world event. But they claim the Middle East has already provided that. There's literally no evidence of that at all. 
Um, but they are saying, oh, we're very worried about wages. Wages are going up. Look, wages have had to exceed inflation at the moment because people's wages have fallen behind. And unless people's wages catch up, they won't have the capacity to spend to therefore start the economy going again. This is the other reason why we have a recession. People's wages fell because of inflation and because of the pressure the government and the Bank of England put, and the Bank of England was particularly determined on this issue, on the downward pressure on wages. But actually, we need people's wages to catch up. Now the Bank of England is saying, oh, they can't catch up because that would be terrible. So they want people to be worse off, ignoring the fact that, of course, what inflation has done is massively increase the well-being of those who are benefiting from high interest rate, which are those who are wealthy, and is imposing costs on those on low incomes who tend to borrow, or younger people who also tend to borrow. So this is you know, just a conspiracy against you know, ordinary, if I might describe people as any person as ordinary, those who are on average levels of income, which I'll describe as ordinary in this sense. So this is just dire economics designed to protect the interests of a particular interest group in society called the wealthy. It's a pleasure to be described as ordinary on my part. Um, Jeremy Hunt was talking about further cutting public spending to create fiscal headroom. Now, this buzz phrase, I'm seeing it everywhere, along with fiscal rules. What do they mean in practice? Uh, there are no such things as fiscal rules. Um, there is no such thing as fiscal headroom. A fiscal rule is made up by a chancellor who wants a reason to constrain the level of government spending so that they can maintain the level of the private sector activity in the economy so that they can continue to fuel government money towards the private sector so that it may be extracted by way of profits to fuel the interests and the benefits of, well, whoever it might be, privatised businesses, outsourced agencies, whatever. So, they are trying to limit the size of government. There is no such thing as a fiscal rule. They don't exist. They are always subject to um, change. And fiscal headroom simply means, oh, I thought of a number, um, and now I've um, discovered that I was a little bit too cautious, first of all, so now there's a little bit more uh, space to spend money. It's just make-believe. It's fantasy economics. You know, it's easier to believe in you know, the most absurd of claims by some religious sects than it is to believe in these economists who make up things quite as crazy as fiscal rules and fiscal headroom. They are just, well, like weird sect beliefs. Talking of potentially fantastical beliefs, we had the report that the OBR had handed a load of figures to Jeremy Hunt and said, we're now in recession. What role are the OBR currently playing in directing economic policy and is it useful? I don't think the OBR is particularly useful, particularly because they are required to use the figures given to them by government. They're not allowed to make up their own numbers. So they say they've given the government projections. But what the government has said is, this is what we're going to do. Now, can you turn those into a five-year forecast and then give them back to us? And then we'll say that an independent agency has reviewed them and said they're okay. If you look at the track record, of the OBR since 2010, when it was created by George Osborne, it has always over-predicted growth. It has always over-predicted the fall in government borrowing. It has generally been wrong with regard to inflation. It's usually wrong with regard to interest rates. In fact, its track record is dire. Um, it is simply another piece of 
propaganda. And remember that the OBR is actually a bunch of people sitting in the Treasury in reality, employed by the Treasury and marking the Treasury's homework. So let's not pretend it's independent or some great wonderful set of gurus. They're simply marking what the Treasury gave them and giving it back and saying, yeah, those seem to add up. Actually, very often they don't even add up, to be blunt. Um, As I've often shown, the government's figures don't add up, including, for example, on GDP. Richard Murphy, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, Let's see what you have been saying. Uh, Remember, you can leave your comments in the YouTube Super Chat, or alternatively, you can tweet at us on the hashtag Navara Live. Oliver Kant, Oliver, as always, thank you for your service. Uh, With £2 as growing the economy with permanent austerity. Uh, Nigel the Crab with £2 says, government is spending more on wealth transfer. Well, we really appreciate you giving us £2 amid these tough, tough economic times. And speaking of tough economic conditions, which are bad news for you and me, some people, though, are going to be celebrating today, which are namely British gas executives. The company's profits have leaped from £72 million to £700 and £51 million in just a year. That is a tenfold increase, and it's a direct result of higher energy prices for consumers. During the energy crisis, retailers like British Gas were forced to sell energy at below wholesale price. But the energy regulator, Ofgem, allowed them to claw back those losses from consumers last year by raising the energy price cap. And that resulted in an extra £500 million going to British Gas in 2023. British Gas is owned by Centrica, a company that posted a pre-tax profit of £6.5 billion for 2023. That led to a payout worth £122 million to shareholders. Defending British Gas's obscene wealth was Chief Executive Chris O'Shea, who said this. I said this before, and I want to take this opportunity to say it again. To be sustainable, you must make a profit, which is super important, because every consumer in the UK is paying £88 for the failure of other energy suppliers in the last few years. If more companies fail, these costs go to customer bills. That's the free market, baby. There's a huge gap between failure and nearly a billion pounds in profit, is there not, Christopher? Especially when it's unearned profit driven by a hike in wholesale energy prices caused by a shock event, aka the war in Ukraine. That is what we like to call profiteering. Now, this was Sharon Graham from the Union Unite on those eye-watering profits. Centrica is still raking in astonishingly high profits off the back of exorbitant energy bills that are nearly double what they were three years ago. There is no point beating around the bush. The only way to stop households and businesses being ripped off by the profiteers in our energy economy, uh, energy supply chain, sorry, is public ownership. It is an absolutely affordable option that would protect the national interest. Our politicians need to decide whose side they're on and make the right choices. Spoiler, they've decided which side they're on and they won't make the right choices. Helena, have we adjusted to a terrible new normal when it comes to massive energy company profits? Well, where do I even start with this? What this basically all is, is the end result of four decades of catastrophically terrible policy on this entire sector of the economy. So one of the things, as Chris O'Shea alluded to there in a statement, was this issue of high bills being necessary to ensure that the smaller competitors don't go bust. And of course, because of the price cap and the anti-competition laws that we have set by the regulator Ofgem, it means that there is no ability to compete in this market. And as competition 
of smaller companies is being hamstrung by the energy cap. We've essentially admitted prima facie already that this is a natural monopoly which we couldn't compete on in the first place. Having this in private hands is just incredibly silly. And that's just for the supply end very, very specifically. Because remember, you remember British Gas is just the supplier and that is a subsidiary of Centrica, the parent company. As the parent company made two billion total in profit on top of the profit they're making from their supplier, they make that on top of that in their energy production called Spirit Energy, which of course we privatized in the 1980s under Margaret Thatcher, just throwing away these gas licenses so that privateers can make huge amounts of money while she was taking the tax revenue to fund the dole queues in the 80s. And ever since then, it's remained privatized. Now, what does that mean for us? It means we have no control over it. It also means that we get ripped off when the price of wholesale gas increases, like it has because of the shortfall, because of the war in Ukraine. And we have little gas on our own doorstep that we get absolutely shredded in the pockets for. It's an utterly insane system that no reasonable person would ever think was a way that anybody would be able to manage this part of the economy. Let's compare this, for example, to the Norwegian energy sector. Now, they have majority state ownership in their private oil, in the public oil, publicly owned oil company, Equinor, that does most of the drilling within the North and Barents Seas. And also in the North Sea in the UK, we just sold part of the Rosebank oil field to Equinor so that Norway can take all of the money from that nationalized asset and put it into their sovereign wealth fund. Their sovereign wealth fund is so big that 1.5% of all companies, all listed companies in the world are owned by the Norwegian state-owned oil fund off of their nationalized oil reserves, and which is $270,000 per person in the Norwegian economy. It's gigantic and just shows how stupid the privatization of this sector has been so far. And what this has done is caused the recession, this increase in bills, rather than having a proper windfall tax, which has been proposed by Labour and Liberal Democrats, but the Tories haven't done, means that people's bills have been massively high, both private and public. Remember, so also the private companies have been paying high energy bills as well. So small businesses have been going bust because they can't afford their energy bills. And this is all contributed to the recession that we have right now. It's All of it is terrible. Nothing is good from start to finish. Okay, so you say, we've got loads of problems there, Helena. What's your solution? Now, of course, anybody who's been paying attention to politics knows that the solution to this is green power generation. There's no point nationalizing the oil reserves in the North Sea because we need to divest away from them and they're running out anyway. So we need to create new state-owned green power, completely state-owned, not 25% state-owned like GB Energy is pretending that it's state ownership. No, fully state-owned green power. And then you say, okay, going to the previous conversation, well, you want to invest in this green energy. You want to spend all of this money. But what about the inflationary pressures of fiscal expansion? What about the public debt? Now, I have a couple of responses to these claims. The first of all, when we look at inflationary figures with response to fiscal deficits, currently, our inflation is it's coming down very slowly, but it is coming down whilst having all of this austerity, which is the next thing, we can't spend more because it'll be inflationary. You look over the United States, they passed the Inflation Reduction Act. They had a trillion dollars of investment in green energy, green power, and the green transition over there. That's a 7% budget deficit into the supply side of the economy, which of course, you increase the supply overall. And that is a limiting factor on inflation because inflation is when demand outstrips supply. Now, what's this 7% deficit led to? It's led to jobs up, no, sorry, unemployment is lower, wages are increasing, bottom quartile wages in America outpacing inflation and have done for a very, very long time. And inflation is still coming down there, despite it being somewhat demandable inflation there too, because they've invested in the supply side. With regards to the public debt, I would like to refer everybody to Simon Ren Lewis, the macroeconomist, his excellent blog, I think everybody should check out, who made this point, there is no 
economic theory or experimental practice that tells you that having a large debt-to-GDP ratio is inherently bad. In the period after the war, our debt-to-GDP ratio was way higher than it is now. We built the NHS, we built lots of council houses, we nationalized industries, we had a thriving economy for you know, lots of people within this country. And compare it to what we have now, you know, our debt-to-GDP ratio is lower than France's, but they're better off than we are because they nationalized their energy sector. So there's no actual evidence as to why a large debt-to-GDP ratio is bad. So the final point I'll make, the solution has to be Rachel Reeves must, she must drop her fiscal rule of debt-to-GDP ratio falling by the end of the economy, either the end of the, or in the economy, falling by the end of the first parliament. There's no reason for it other than ideological, because you want to stick to a certain number for political reasons. All it's doing is hamstringing us from having a green transition, from growing our economy like they say they do in their five missions. And if they don't do that, we'll have continual continu we'll have continuity austerity that will immiserate our economy and leave us being the continual sick man of Europe. It's kind of crazy for a country that did so much to uh, embed capitalism around the world. We're so bad at it. Uh, let's go to our next story. The Metropolitan Police has announced that they are dropping a controversial intelligence tool after years of campaigning by human rights groups. The gang's violence matrix was launched in 2012 as a response to the 2011 London riots, and the Met said it would help them tackle serious violence by identifying gang members in London. According to the Met, only people who had been explicitly identified as being a gang member would be included in the database. And this is how the Met defines a gang. A relatively durable, predominantly street-based group of young people who, one, see themselves and are seen by others as a discernible group, and two, engage in a range of criminal activity and violence. But for years, human rights activists and organisations have been saying that the gang's matrix is racist and not fit for purpose. Here's how Amnesty UK have described the gang's matrix. A racially discriminatory service that stigmatises young black men for the music they listen to or their behaviour on social media. In 2020, Amnesty released a report digging into the gang's matrix and it found that of the nearly 4,000 people on the matrix, 78% were black and 99% were male. And this was despite the Met's own data showing that only 27% of people responsible for serious youth violence are black. The youngest person on the matrix was only 12 years old. Inclusion on the matrix could come about from surveillance of a person's social media activity or whether they were found to have down downloaded certain types of music, like grime. In 2018, the Matrix was found to have breached data protection laws by the Information Commissioner's Office, and the Met were told to sort it out. But three years later, the ICO said the Met had met its recommendations around the Matrix. This wasn't good enough for campaigners, though. So in 2022, policing watchdog Unjust UK brought a legal challenge against the Met, with the help of human rights organisation Liberty. The case challenged the legality of the Matrix, saying that efforts to reform it had failed. The Met decided to settle before the case was heard at court. They agreed to, quote, wholesale change the matrix and admitted the database was unlawful. Two years later, this week, the Met announced they are discontinuing that matrix altogether. And here's what they said. In October 2022, we committed to the complete redesign of the gang's violence matrix. We've been considering how it can best make assessments and meet operational challenges. Responding to feedback from a range of sources, including the communities we serve, we've decided to discontinue use of the gang's violence matrix. This took effect on the 13th of February 2024. 
But while the Met is scrapping the gang's matrix, they said they will still be using an intelligence tool to tackle violence. The force says that they will adapt their violence harm assessment system, which will target, quote, violent offenders rather than vaguely defined gang members. I'm now joined by Hope Jalokal Mullen, a community organiser with the Forefront Project. Hope, what is the violence harm assessment tool? The violence harm assessment, as far as we know, is another form of database like the gang's matrix. So like the matrix, it's an intelligence tool and it's a way for the police to collect information on people they deem to be at risk in some way. Um, The way it differs, at least as the Met claims, is that it's not going to be specifically targeting gang members as such. So it's going to be looking at the most kind of violent offenders, what they say. Obviously, we have concerns with that and the fact that it's being used by the Met Police, uh, an institutionally racist police force, as they all are. Um, Our concern is that the people that are identified as potentially violent offenders are likely to be the same types of people that the gangs matrix identified were likely to be gang members, which is, you know, majority working class, young black men and boys. Data sharing was also a massive concern around the gangs matrix because uh, being on the gangs matrix could then later be shared with, you know, institutions like housing associations, etc., and block the people who appeared on the gang matrix from accessing key public services. The Met have said that data sharing won't be blanket with the violence harm assessment, but it will be case by case. Does this make a difference at all? Even though it's meant to be not sharing as much data, they still are admitting that they will be sharing data. What the Met deems to be as, you know, case by case rather than blanket, I think it will. we will only see what the impacts are, but it's definitely worrying for us. Any police surveillance tool is definitely worrying for us, but we've seen the impacts that the gangs matrix had on young people, like you say, you know, young people that we work with at Forefront who were unable to register for college, who were blocked from opening bank accounts, refused driving licenses. You know, this information was used in court cases and the people being convicted under joint enterprise. So I think even a case by case sharing of data can have a really, really damaging impact on people. So we definitely have concerns that in the way that the gangs matrix caused a lot of harm, the violence harm assessment has an equal opportunity to cause the same harm. From your work with those young people at Forefront, do you think it's the databases themselves that are at at fault, you know, a database that's been built wrong? Or is it the institutions behind the database? Is this just the problem with a gangs matrix individually, or is this a wider issue with the way policing is conducted? The issue definitely isn't just the gangs matrix. I think they're both an issue in different ways. I mean, we know that the Met Police is a racist institution. So anytime that they try to come up with a way of apparently protecting the public from some kind of violence ends up being, you know, increased harassment and criminalization of black and racialized communities. We know this. But I think also there's a wide issue of surveillance and databases being used as a way to prevent harm. And that is partly from the police. But also we're seeing it happen in schools. Schools are creating their own databases of apparently high-risk criminal individuals. And I think there's definitely a joint issue, partly of, you know, trying to tackle harm through surveillance and partly of the police. And I think what we think at forefront, at least, is that the whole approach to harm is wrong. We need to be starting with really looking to heal young people and people in general. If we want to tackle violence and harm in communities, the way to do that is not to surveil people, to criminalise them. 
is to work out the root cause of the issues and really try and, you know, lead with peace, healing, justice um, and support people rather than criminalising them and surveilling them, which is what the police are doing. What does Forefront want to see happen now with the violence harm assessment? How does the organisation want those harms to be confronted in a way that's actually helpful for young people? There is harm happening in our communities. We would never dispute that. But part of that harm really comes from the state and these policing institutions. So one of the ways to deal with that harm is to limit the powers of the police so that they no longer have this opportunity to harm our young people. But we also want to see, you know, investment in community infrastructure that means that young people can get support they need when they experience harm so that they can rectify it in peaceful ways. Also support they need to live thriving lives. And part of that also, we're talking about the gangs matrix, is about how to repair the harms that the matrix has done. You know, we're seeing that the matrix has now been scrapped and the violence harm assessment has been brought in. But we still haven't seen justice for these young people whose lives have been really deeply affected by the matrix. So many young people, you know, have been through a lot of trauma and really painful situations thanks to the Matrix. And now that the Matrix is scrapped, they've just been kind of left to deal with that, to pick up the pieces. Lots of people don't even know they were on the Matrix in the first place. So we'd really like to see the Met firstly informing people who were on the Matrix that they were there. After the court case, you know, thousands of people were removed, but they weren't told they were removed. So a simple step would be to let them know that their rights were breached. And yeah, going forward, you want to see a move away from this surveillance of our communities, this harassment of young people, young black people just trying to live their lives and some investment in some actual life-affirming structures for them going forward. Hope to Mullen, thank you so much for joining us. And thank you, Helena, for joining me tonight. Thank you, as always, as much appreciated. Look forward to next time. We really appreciate your commentary. It's so insightful. And thanks to all of you at home for tuning in. Come back tomorrow for another show from 6pm. For now, you have, as always, been watching Navara Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navara Media. Go to navaramedia.com support.